Shalom and welcome to this week's uh, Shi'ur lecture. And uh, this week is special. Uh, we have the holiday of Shavuot um, going straight into Shabbat. So this uh, week's lecture is going to be all about the Mount Sinai experience. The title is Having a Mount Sinai Experience, subtitle Working on Change. Okay, so we always start with a modern day issue. Let's take a modern day issue. Albert Einstein is quoted for saying, we can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. Okay, let's take this quote to its very root. According to science, with a blend of Kabbalah, our thinking is the product of both nature and nurture. On the nurture side, our perception is based on our earliest truisms that we learned from our primary caretakers and our environment about reality. On the nature side, our thinking is based upon merging elements of our soul's faculties of intellects and of the merging elements of our physiolog physiological brains. And while our studies are proving to us more and more that much of the brain is soft-wired rather than hard-wired, nevertheless, much of why different people have different talents, such as in art, music, science, numbers, abstract logic, etc., are the outcome of their nature of merging elements within their specific souls and their specific brain, which then affects their mind, and its way of thinking. Now, the point being that our kind of thinking, to quote Einstein, when we are speaking about something far deeper and more holistic than a mathematical formula, is something far genetically deeper, both physically and spiritually, than to just erase the blackboard and start over from a radically new premise. With this understanding, I reflect upon what Dr. Carl Jung said to the relapsing alcoholic businessman, Rolling Hazard III, as documented in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, page 27, and I quote, the doctor said, you have a mind of a chronic alcoholic. I have never seen one single case recover where that state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed upon him with a clang. He said to the doctor, is there no exception? Yes, replied the doctor, there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early time. Our times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. To me, these occurrences and phenomena, they appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men, are suddenly cast to one side. And a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. In fact, I have been trying to produce some such emotional rearrangement within you. With many individuals, individuals, the methods which I employed are successful, but I never have been successful with an alcoholic of your description. 
Upon hearing this, our friend was somewhat relieved, for he reflected that after all, he was a good church member. This hope, however, was destroyed by the doctors telling him that while his religious convictions were very good, in his case, they did not spell the necessary vital spiritual experience. Now, before I go any further, obviously you hear him talking about, Dr. Young talking about men, masculine. Um, it applies the same to women. It's just that in the earliest stages, this is actually pre-birth of Alcoholics Anonymous, primarily the men were the alcoholics and the women were the Al-Anons. Of, of the first 100 alcoholics, there was actually one woman. Okay, so Dr. Young is here describing the very core nature of what it means we can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. When speaking of a core problem within the depths of our kind of thinking. With this understanding, we are now going to explore what completely, and I quote from Dr. Young, completely new set of conceptions and motives we experienced 3,332 years ago at Mount Sinai when God gave us his Torah and how this new kind of thinking happened. And most importantly, how we can access this change of thinking today. This lecture is based primarily on a mimer, a mystical teaching that the Rebbe of Blessed Memory delivered on the holiday of Shavuot in 1969, exploring the mystical teachings upon the unprecedented and never-to-be-repeated Mount Sinai experience. Introduction. What's the big deal? Shavuot, the holiday on which God gave us the Torah at Mount Sinai 3,332 3, years ago. Let me just make that clear. We're now in the year 5,080 since creation. Mount Sinai experience happened in the year 2,448. That's the mathematics. Okay, celebrates the greatest revolution of God that the world would ever experience. God descended upon Mount Sinai and spoke publicly to the entire Jewish nation, comprised of about 3 million people at the time. We're talking about the number 600,600, actually, and 33,550 is the number the Torah gives. But remember, that's only men from the age of 20 and up. They were counting those who were were able to go to the army. So add on the women, the children, the senior citizens, we figure about 3 million. Okay, not only that, that God spoke publicly to them, but this revelation was so outstanding and unprecedented that even when we speak of the revelations of the times of Mashiach, which is the greatest revelations that the prophets talk about, and the unprecedented revelations within the Torah itself that Mashiach is going to teach us. But every time you find the teachings about that, we immediately state, we are told, Matin Torah, the giving of the Torah, was only one time. Even when Mashiach comes, that revelation will not be repeated. Thus, even with all the greatest of revelations that will be, nevertheless, Shavuot, remains unique and outstanding. The question is, what is so unique about God giving us the Torah at Mount Sinai? When, what's the, I mean, of course it's unique. One moment. 
when our patriarchs already studied, and so did the 12 sons of Jacob. And I quote to you the Talmud tractic Yuma, and I quote, Rabbi Chama said of Rabbi, Chan, Rabbi Chama, Chama, son of Rabbi Hanina, said, From the days of our ancestors, Yeshiva never left them. Our ancestors were leaders of the generations who taught Torah to students who came to them. When, we were, when they were in Egypt, there was a Yeshiva with them. As it is stated, go and gather the elders of Israel, indicating that there were sages among them who studied Torah. And similarly, when they were in the desert, there was a yeshiva with them, as is stated, gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel. Now, Abraham, our patriarch, was himself an elder and would sit in yeshiva, as it is stated, and Abraham was old, advanced in years. Now, from the apparent redundancy of the terms old and advanced in years, it is determined that old means that he was a wise elder and prominent in Torah. Now, and advanced years means that he was elderly. Similarly, Isaac, our patriarch, was an elder and sat in yeshiva, as it is stated, and it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim. Similarly, Jacob, our patriarch, was an elder and sat in yeshiva, as it is stated, and Israel's eyes were heavy with age. So, the Torah already existed. The Jewish people already existed, and God already revealed it to the Jewish people. So what is the great novelty of what happened at Mount Sinai in God giving the Torah to the Jewish people? One introduction. Number two, the, say, the opening verse to God giving us the Ten Commandments and with it the entire Torah is as follows. God spoke all these words, Lamor, saying. Now, normally when God says, the Torah says, and God spoke to Moses, saying, saying meant that God is telling Moses to give this over to the children of Israel. Or when God speaks to a prophet, Lamor, obviously God is telling the prophet, give over these words, Lamor, say it to another. Now, the question is, that specifically here, by the Ten Commandments, it does not make sense to say the word Lamor. Number one, God was speaking publicly to all the Jewish people, men, women, adults, children, everyone directly. So who is the Lamor? Additionally, we cannot say that the Lamor means that God's telling them, teach it to your children that will be born. Because here is an interesting teaching, which is quoted in Pirkei the Rabbeleza and in the Zohar, other places too. Till the end of all the generations, we're talking about who God spoke to. As it is said, but with him that stand here with us this day, and those also who in the future will be created, until the end of all the generations, there they stood at, with them at Mount Sinai, as it is said. And also with them, the, that is not here with us this day. Thus, the word saying here really doesn't make sense to us. Who is God telling us to tell this to if already God directly told it to every single Jew in that generation and in all generations to come? So Hasidus is going to explain that there are three mystical meanings behind the word saying in this verse. There's also other teachings. I want to focus on the three mystical teachings of Hasidus. Number one, 
by God using the word saying, Lamar, God empowered, that whomever reads and studies Torah, the Holy One, blessed be he, reads and studies across from him or her. Thus, the word saying here means that we are saying to God to repeat what he said. So there we have the teaching, it comes from Tana de Beliao, that says that call Hakira Vishoina, anyone that reads or studies the Torah, Hakadish Barakul, Kaira Vishoina Kenegdai, Hashem reads and is studying with him. Thus the saying is to God that God should repeat the words. Now, the second teaching is that by saying God empowered that we be humbly and transparently repeating but the words of God. As the verse states in Psalms, my tongue will proclaim your words. Thus over here the word lamor means that by our studying of Torah is that of saying the words of God. It's God's words being repeated through our mouth. The third opinion, the third interpretation is, and this is very interesting. By God using the word saying, lamor, he was referring to specific sayings. Now, if you look in Ethics of Our Fathers, it says that God created the world in ten utterances. Nine times it says, and God said, let there be light, let the water give forth, let the earth give forth. The tenth time they say is the word voracious itself is an utterance. Thus, what God is saying here when he says the Ten Commandments, Lamar, God is empowering us that by us studying the Torah here in this world, we will draw the infinite light of the Ten Commandments into the finite light of the Ten Utterances, bringing the infinite light into the finite universe. Three mystical interpretations on the word Lamor. And God said these words, the Ten Commandments, saying. Okay, in this lecture, we will understand the connection between these three teachings and how within them lay the novelty of Mount Sinai experience. And now, let's start the lecture. So as you know, I always start the lecture with giving you a list of the ten uh, I'm sorry, not the 10, of the mystical concepts that we're going to study before we wrap it up and come back to the teachings of the, um, the, the modern-day issue. Okay, the 10, the five, I keep on saying 10, I guess 10 commandments. Okay, so the five, actually, concepts we're going to talk about is, number one, with me, God is talking. Number two, the giver, the receiver, and the gift. Number three, fragrance versus good fragrant oil. And four, three sayings, the three teachings on the word saying. And then finally, we're going to talk about essence. And let the amazement of Hasidus begin. Okay, first topic. With, with me, God is talking. The first of the Ten Commandments begin with the words, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am your God, your singular. Now, God was speaking to the entire Jewish people of that generation and all other generations. So why did God say the word Elokecha, singular, and not the word Elokechem, plural? 
we find the word alekechem. If you look at the end of the Shema, ra'ani Hashem alekechem. So why over here is it singular? That's a question that is asked. Now, our sages in the uh, teachings of the Medrashic Yalkut Shemoni, he says like this, and I quote, Said Rabbi Levi, So too, when the Holy One, blessed be he, spoke, every Jew said, with me, singular, individual, with me, the speaker is speaking. It does not say, I am God, Elokechem, plural. It says, I am God, Elokecha, singular. Said Rabbi Yossi Bar Hanina, in accordance with the strength of each and every one, did the speaker speak to him. Now, and the teaching of this is not just concerning the spiritual strength of each one, capacity of the soul of each individual, but so too in accordance with the physical strength of each individual. As the teaching in the Yalkut goes on to say, when he says that each one received it, on an individual level, he brings a proof on the mana, and he says that there was the infant experienced it on its capacity, the young on their capacity, the old on their capacity. And these stages of infant, young, and old doesn't apply to a soul. There's no such thing as an infant soul, a young soul, an old soul. Soul is spiritual, it transcends beyond time. And therefore, we must say that it's talking about the body. The physical body. God was talking to each Jew individually, not just to his or her soul, but to his or her body on their individual capacity. Now, on a mystical level, what does this mean? So the teaching is connected to a previous part of this same teaching in the Yalkut Shemoni. And I'm going to quote, over there we extrapolate from the verse, God's chariot, is, it's a verse in Psalms, chapter 66, verse 18. God's chariot is twice 10,000 10, times thousands of angels. The Lord was among them at Sinai in his holiness. Now, how do the sages explain this verse? The verse is speaking of the angels and the way they came with God to Mount Sinai. Now, when the verse states, the Lord was among them, what, what is the, of course, God came to give the Torah. So our sages extrapolate what it's referring to is how God associated his name with the angels. For example, Mechael, the last part of that name is God's name. Gavriel, the last, name, uh, the last part of that name is God's name. And Rephael, for example, I'm giving you three famous angels. So God's name is in their name. Thus God associated his name with them. And then the teaching goes on to say the second half of the verse, which says, at Sinai in his holiness, that means that God associated his name with each and every Jew. By the way, this isn't the teaching, but Jew, Yisrael, the last part of that name is God's name too. Now, God associated his name with angels. What does that mean? So the explanation is that God empowered the angels to have absolute humility self-nullification and transparency to God. So much so that when God sends an angel on a mission and the angel spoke to Abraham, to, to Hagar when her son was dying, Ishmael, all those times you'll, you'll see that the angel says in, as if he's talking in first person. How can that be? The angel is just an emissary. 
But the point is that the angel becomes so so humility, self-nullification, and transparency that he doesn't see himself as anything more than a can do it for God. That is what it means when it says that God associates his name with the angel, that the angel becomes nothing more than, so to speak, an expression of God. Now, what happens at the Ten Commandments, when God says, I am God, your God, so much so that God puts it in the possessive, as if I possess God. Possessiveness here. Uh, my God. So what happens is that when he says, I am God, your God, once again, there's association, meaning that God empowered every single Jew to have absolute humility, self-nullification, and transparency to God. Now, this is so much so when we talk about that God associated his name with the with the Jewish people at Mount Sinai, each individual, that Kabbalah takes it a step further and explains on a soul level. There's four letters to God's name. The Yud, the He, the Vav, and the He. The Yud represents the faculty of wisdom. The He represents the faculty of understanding. Vav, the sixth letter, represents the six male emotions. He, which is a feminine letter, represents the feminine mystique of the seventh emotion, kingship. So too, it goes on further. The body is represented in the letters of God's name. The yud is like a dot that represents the head. The vav, the line, represents the body. The first hand represents the fingers of the hand and the second hay represents the toes of the foot. The point being here that this power through God associating his name with us, not just on a spiritual level, but on a very physical level, empowers us to have absolute humility, self-nullification, and transparency to become nothing more then the subjects of God, one with God, and can do it through which God's word and God's will and God's actions take place. Now, thus, let's go back to what we said. When the Jews heard, I am God, your God, singular, they each said, with me, God is talking. What does that mean? That means that the complete unity of God's name with each Jew creating a total humility and self-nullification and transparency of that person to God manifests both in the soul and in the body of the Jew. Now, how is this possible? How is it possible that the ultra-infinite spirituality of God's ineffable tetragrammaton name should become one internally and to have an effect on my physical finite body, which from dust I came and to dust I will return. So the answer is that because we are speaking of the essence of the name, we're going to get to a moment here, which transcends beyond the boundaries of body and soul. Think about it. To the essence of God, the soul is no more closer than the body. God's definition of infinite is so that the infinite soul and the finite body are both equally distant and equally not. Thus, because God introduces the essence into the picture, 
Thus, the very highest levels of spirituality, the infinite and omnipotent ineffable tetragrammaton four-letter name of God becomes one with the physical body down here. And now let's understand the verse. God says, I, that's the essence, am God, the ineffable tetragrammaton, your God. Now, it is through the I, the essence, that it is possible that God, the ineffable tetragrammaton name, can become your singular, united with your soul and body, creating humility, nullification, and transparency to God. Now we understand the mystical reading of those first three words of the Ten Commandments. I, essence, God, the ineffable tetragrammaton, your God, meaning that through the I, the God becomes united and one and affects the your, your God, your soul and your body. And this is what we explained earlier concern, concerning the word saying, which empowered us that when we, when we to read and study Torah, God reads and studies Torahs with us. That this is through the I am God, your God, singular, creating the humility, nullification, transparency that thus draws forth that God should read and study with us. The reason why my reading would have God reading with me is only because of my absolute self-nullification, humility, and transparency that draws forth when I study God's Torah that God studies with me. Okay, let's go to the second concept. The giver, the receiver, and the gift. In order to understand the connection between the three interpretations to the word saying, let us take a closer look at God giving us the Torah. The giving of the Torah involves three, the giver, God, the receiver, the Jewish people, and the gift, the Torah. And therefore, the unprecedented novelty of God giving the Torah to the Jewish people, even though from Abraham on, the Jewish people studied and observed the Torah, is in all three levels. There's a novelty, not just in one level, but there's a novelty in the giver, in the receiver, and in the gift that is unprecedented, even though Abraham received the Torah from God. Now, in God's relationship with the Torah and the Jewish people, in Jewish people's relationship with God and the Torah, and in the Torah's relationship with God and Jewish people, something, a quantum leap, something unprecedented, a novelty took place at Mount Sinai. Now, in order to understand this, we will turn to a teaching that talks of the difference between our patriarch studying Torah and observing the Torah and our post Mount Sinai studying and observing the Torah. And now let's go to the next concept, fragrance and good fragrant oil. So King Solomon says in the book of Songs, chapter one, verse three, and I'm going to quote the verse. Because of the fragrance of your goodly oils, your name is oil poured forth. Oil poured forth. Okay. Our sages want to say, what, what is King Solomon saying? So in the Medrash Rabbah, Shirashirim Rabbah on this verse, he expounds upon the verse. And I'm going to quote. Rabbi Yanai, son, son of Rabbi Shimon said, All the songs that the patriarch said to you, that means studying Torah, 
were smells, fragrances, but we are your name is oil poured forth. We'll soon understand that. And then goes on further, as a person who empties from a vessel into a vessel. And then Rabbiane goes on and says further, all the precepts, all the mitzvot, the actions that our patriarchs did before you were smell, fragrance. But we, when we do mitzvot, we are your name is oil poured forth. Shemen Turak Shemecha. Okay, what does this mean? That our patriarchs studying Torah and mitzvahs observance were only like fragrances, really. Abraham, the man who went and put his son Isaac onto the altar. The man who went and was thrown into the fire because he wouldn't denounce that he belongs only and believes only to a monothetic God. All those studies. And what everything that happened with Isaac, 37 years old, he allowed himself to be bound onto the altar. And everything that he did and studied and all the mitzvahs he did. And Jacob and everything that he went studied through. Rashi tells us that for 14 years he was in Shem Be'eva and he didn't sleep on a bed because he was busy studying. So, and El Yeshiva of Aver. So all this is taking place this is all fragrance but you and i sitting here half brained listening to the class and my other half a brain is worrying about the upcoming shavuos that i prepare everything is my cheese cake going to be good is my cheese blintzes how am i going to pay the bills with this whole pandemic going on all of that barely trying to concentrate that's the real thing oh when i put on my tefillin and i race through a prayer because i'm in a rush gotta get to work on time that's the real thing. How? What does that mean? So let's talk about what the difference between fragrance and the fragrant oil itself is. And I'm going to point out that in Jewish mysticism and Hasidus, we talk about three differences. And these three differences are going to coincide with the three teachings we had on the word saying. And each one is going to affect the different three elements of the giving of the Torah. One, the giver. One, the receiver and one the gift. And let's go. Difference number one. The fragrance is but an expression, expansion of the oil, while the oil itself is the essence. Okay, what does this mean? Let's see. Oh, sorry, one second here. Little mess up. Okay, let's go further. What does this mean? This teaches us of the unprecedented novelty in the giver's relationship with the Torah at Mount Sinai. Let's understand this. The Torah in its own right is not the essence of God. It is called Chachmato Yitbarach, His blessed wisdom. Now, wisdom is not the essence of God. Wisdom comes forth from God. But God is not wisdom. So, therefore, what happened originally in the Torah, pre-Mount Sinai, was that God expressed himself. They didn't put his essence. He expressed himself, his wisdom, into the Torah. Now, that is what Abraham, until Mount Sinai, experienced. Now, what happens when God gives us the Torah? What does the Ten Commandments begin with? The word Anochi, which, by the way, unusual word. Not the holy tongue. The holy tongue would be ani, just like we see again by Shema. Ani Hashem Emet. We don't see anochi. And our sages extrapolate from the word anochi. The word anochi has four letters. Aleph, Nun, Chaf, Yud. Now, the Gemara in Tractic Shabbat says that the Hebrew word anochi is an acronym for four words. 
Anna Aleph Anna Nafshit the Nun Ktavit the Chaf Yehavit give. And what does that mean? That's the Yud. Now, what does that mean? What that literally means, I, my soul, my essence, in the writings I have given. In other words, what God is saying here is that at Mount Sinai, God didn't just share his wisdom in the Torah, rather he placed himself in the Torah. And thus, we say, the Zohar says, it says the words, the Torah and the Holy One, blessed be he, are one. Another thing our sages say, this is really interesting. In the Torah portion where it talks about building the tabernacles, it says, You shall take for me a donation. Now, the word doesn't mean take for me. It doesn't say, bishvili. It says, take me. How do you take me? Through truma. And the explanation here is that the word truma over here is not going to mean donation, breaking into two words, Torah, Mem. The Torah that was given in 40 days and 40 nights. Thus, what the verse is saying here, according to the teachings in Shemot Rabbah, that when you take the Torah, you take me because I put my essence into it. Let me tell you how far this goes. Let me tell you what, what the teaching says, and I read it to you. The Holy One, the Holy One blessed be He said to Israel, I sell to you my Torah, and I am sold along with it. Thus, the first difference between the fragrance and the oil. Abraham, was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way up to the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. What they were receiving was the fragrance of God, i.e. the wisdom of God. What we received at Mount Sinai was the essence of God. Anochi was given to us at Mount Sinai. Now, this is the first interpretation of the word saying, that God empowered us to be able to study Torah in a fashion of total humility and selflessness, and that our studying Torah is nothing more than saying God's word. My tongue will proclaim your word. This total selflessness in Torah study becomes possible only because God has placed his essence into his Torah that he gave us. Let's go to difference number two between fragrance and between the oil itself. When I smell the fragrance, one does not diminish from the oil anything. However, when one takes from the oil, let's remember the words the teaching used, as a person who empties from a vessel into a vessel. He diminishes from the amount of oil in the first vessel. Now, what does this mean? This speaks of the unprecedented novelty in the Jews' relationship with receiving the Torah, the receiver at Mount Sinai. Why? Because at, at the time of Mount Sinai, the Torah was taken away from the spiritual celestial realms and was given to the physical terrestrial realms, poured out of one vessel into another vessel. Now, what does this mean? Concerning the Torah, the verse states in Deuteronomy, it is not in heaven, lo from which our sages extrapolate, for example, in the Talmud and Baba Metziah, it says that we cannot rule upon laws of Torah through heavenly voices or signs. 
but rather the law of Torah follows only as how the living sage down here determines from the verses and the traditions of principles and studying the verses. Now I'm going to actually quote to you because it's unbelievable what that piece of Talmud above Matthias is talking about. A little bit of a backstory. They were arguing over a certain oven, pure or impure, and one person said one opinion, the rest of the sages say another opinion. Now, you know that the verse in the Torah says you have to follow majority. But the singular rabbi was so sure. He said, if I am right, let a heavenly voice come out and say that I am right. A heavenly voice came out and said he's right. They said, nope, sorry, the Torah doesn't come from heaven. It's a, not, it comes from heaven. It's not the verdicts of the Torah don't come from heaven. And therefore, we're sticking to what the Torah told us. Majority rules. He said, if I am right, let the physical walls of this shul start caving in. And the walls started caving in. And the sages said, how dear you, the walls, be mixing into our power of following the laws that Moses gave us and how to extrapolate and determine law from the verse of the Torah. The wall stopped. And at the end, the sages stuck to their guns. Now let me read to you the Gemara. Rabbi Yeshua stood on his feet and said, It is written, it is not in heaven. The Gemara asks, what is the relevance of the phrase, it is not in heaven, in this context, talking about an oven? Rabbi Yemir says, he explained it, since the Torah was already given at Mount Sinai, we do not regard a divine voice. And you, all, you, God, already wrote at Mount Sinai in the Torah after a majority to incline. And they stuck by their guns. Listen to the next piece of the, of the Talmud. Years later, Rabbi Natan encountered Elijah the prophet and said to him, What did the Holy One, blessed be he, do at that time? When Rabbi Yeshua issued his declaration, meaning he's overruling God. Elijah said to him, the Holy One, blessed be he, smiled and said, my children have triumphed over me. My children have they triumphed over me. They won me. That's how serious it is that the Torah left the spiritual realms and came into this realm okay this is the second interpretation of the word saying that we said before that god empowered us that when we read or study torah that god reads and studies with us the power for us to have an impact upon god causing god to read and study torah with us just because we're now reading and studying torah is because of the novelty in god giving us the power of determining the laws of the torah to the point of Again, I quote what Elijah the prophet said. My children have triumphed over me. My children have triumphed over me. Thus, that is the power and the novelty, the unprecedented fact. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were down here. The Torah was up there. And the fragrance of the Torah is what they studied down here. At Mount Sinai, by the way, parenthetically speaking, the angels actually threw a fit, and they asked, Mo, what's Moses doing here? He came to get the Torah. Why are you giving him the Torah? And they quoted the verse, 
Give your glory, your perfect glory to perfect angels. Why would you give your perfect glory to imperfect humans? And the whole story goes on. God told Moses to answer them. But I just want to share with you how real this is. I mean, what do the angels care if we also get the Torah here? The answer is no. It wasn't that the Torah was going to remain there and we'll also enjoy it. God took the Torah from there and gave it to us here. And that gives us the ultimate power that we, human beings, being true to the 13 principles of extrapolation and studying the Torah, true to the verses of the Torah, we here determine the law of Torah. So much so that we impact God, that God agrees to our ruling. And thus we now understand the second interpretation of the word saying, that when we study Torah, we can impact God to read and study with us. Difference number three between the fragrance and the oil. The fragrance eventually terminates. So too, our enjoyment of the fragrance passes on. By the way, that's why you make a bracha before you smell good fragrance. We do it by the Havdalah. But when we eat, we make a blessing before and a blessing after. By fragrance, we don't make a blessing after. And the reason why we don't make a blessing after is because it, our enjoyment completely ends once it's over. Now, let's talk about food, oil, whether you're going to use it in cooking or whether you're going to mix it with other liquids and drink it. When you eat or drink, long after the pleasure of the taste buds are gone, that food actually becomes the very cells of our flesh and our blood, which is why we make an after blessing. Now, with that being understood, not only, listen to this, this is amazing, not only does it become part of our flesh and blood, it actually impacts our personality and our characteristics. And for this, I quote to you from the Ramban, not Rambam, Nachmanides, not Maimonides. Nachmanides was a da he was almost like the Rambam in his lifestyle. He was a Kabbalist. He was a codifier. He was a commentator. He was a, uh, a psychologist, and he was a doctor. He writes in Leviticus, in the portion of Shmini, where it defines which animals are kosher and which are not. Now, biblically speaking, there's no reason why it's kosher or not. It simply depends upon if it has split hooves or chooses cud, and chooses cud, not or. Now, I want to share with you what, what the Nachmanri says, Rambam says. He explains that the reason behind the non-kosher animals being non-kosher and forbidden to us to eat is because they are predators and that eating them would affect our character. So eating not only becomes, it remains with us, it becomes part of our body, it actually affects us on a metaphysical level in our personality and our characteristic traits. That's the difference between fragrance and the oil. Now, let's see what this means. This speaks of unprecedented novelty in Torah's relationship with the Jew, the gift. We spoke about the giver, we spoke about the receiver, this one's about the gift. Let's see how. Prior to Mount Sinai experience, the Torah study and the mitzvot observance of the patriarchs did not make an eternal and permanent impact upon the studier or upon the physical object used for the mitzvot. 
Let's just talk about this for a moment. Kabbalistically speaking, I don't know how it works, so I can't explain it to you, but I'm going to just tell you what it says. You remember that story between Jacob and his father-in-law, and they were arguing of which one's going to get which sheep, the spotted ones and not spotted ones, and this verse says that Jacob did the first concept of genetic engineering. He took trees and he and he peeled certain barks in them so they would have spots. He put them in the water place where the animals, according to one opinion, where they made it, another opinion where they kept on drinking and looking at it while they were um, pregnant and, and, the, uh, and the embryo was evolving. So according to Kabbalah, whatever Jacob did with those sticks, having his deep spiritual mystical intentions while he was doing it, is equivalent to what you and I do today when we put on tefillin. I don't know how that works, but I'm just repeating what I, what I learned. Now, what did Jacob do with those sticks after he finished? He probably could have used them for roasting marshmallows, throw them away. I doubt he kept them with him. They were in the water. They were probably getting ruined. When you and I put on tefillin, we have to kiss the tefillin. We have to respect the tefillin. We can't even keep tefillin in our bedroom if we're married and we have marital relationships. And when the tefillin become non-kosher, we have to bury them. That means that beforehand, the impact of the Torah upon the person and upon the physical objects were not internalized nor permanent. While when we talk about us, oil, not the fragrance that gets terminated eventually and it's gone. But us, our Torah mitzvot is like eating the real oil. And it internalized and it's permanent. Thus we have what we call in halacha, chefsa de mitzvah, an object of a mitzvah. Or chefsa de gedusha, an object of holiness. So the tefillin and the Sefer Torah become objects of holiness. By the way, did you know that after you use your lulav on Sukkot, you shouldn't throw it out. You should actually keep it for six months, put away on top of the shelf, that's what I do. And later when we do the mitzvah, burning the chametz, we use the lulav to help the fire. So we get rid of a mitzvah through a mitzvah. These are laws because the Torah is internalized permanently within the objects we use with for the mitzvot and within our mind and our brain. Thus, that's the third difference between fragrance and oil. And this is the third interpretation of the word saying, which is that God empowers us to draw down the infinite divinity of the Ten Commandments into the finite divinity of the Ten Utterances, to draw God into the world. This power is through God giving the Torah the power to govern, rule to the extent that internalize, it internalizes itself permanently into the world and into us who are studying the Torah. Last, last time, um, Kabbalistic topic before we go into the closing. In conclusion, however, all of the unprecedented novelties of the Mount Sinai experience is that God, the giver, placed his essence, Anochi, into the Torah, and that is what created the unprecedented novelty within the Jew, the recipient, and within the Torah, the gift. 
It is only because of the essence that the giver gave himself into the Torah that the gift, the Torah, has the power to internalize permanently and to govern over the physical world. So too, it is through the essence of God being in the Torah that the Torah then has the recipient, you and I, reveal the source of our, you and I, soul, which is within the essence of God within his or her physical body. That's what it's ultimately all about. The Anochi. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob dealt with the ineffable tetragrammaton. They dealt with the, uh, with the, the name Elohim. But the Anochi, which then reveals within me that there is a piece of Anochi of God in me, and I can reveal that in my physical body through studying Torah and doing mitzvahs, which is the essence bridge between the essence of my soul and the essence of God. In closing, in closing, we can turn, we can now turn to the vital spiritual experience of which Dr. Young was speaking of as being necessary in order to have a true transformation of self which can even recover the addict of his addiction. To, it is of surrendering to the essence of God, to find that essence within ourselves, and to find that essence within the spiritual lifestyle of Torah. And thus our sages in Ethics of Our Fathers, Chapter 6, Mishnah 2 says, For there is no free individual except for he, she, who occupies himself, herself, with the study of Torah. What does this mean? And what the sages speak of here, on a mystical level, is that through the study of Torah, we connect with the essence of God, which is the essence of our soul, through which we experience a huge emotional displacement and rearrangements, ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men, are suddenly cast to one side, and a completely new set of concepts and motives begin to dominate them. God's will. And our no more and we are no more prisoners of ourselves or of others. People have a beautiful and wonderful Chag Shivuot, and may you receive, we each receive the Torah internally, joyfully. And as our sages said, and they all stood, and they all saw, and they all heard. And the Talmud asks, what? How can there be three million people? Not one of them was crippled. Not one of them was blind. Not one of them was deaf. Thus we say that at Mount Sinai, when God gave the Torah, he healed each and every one of us. As the sages say that God said it is inappropriate to give the perfect Torah to imperfect people, meaning physical blemishes. And according to the Rebbe of blessed and saintly memory, this happens again and again every single year on Shavuos where we reenact the Mount Sinai experience. May we open ourselves up to the essence within us, the essence within Torah, the essence within God, and thus open ourselves up to physical healings and blessings. Chag Sameach, Shabbat Shalom.